Welcome to Mind Things, a podcast about how psychedelics will change your brain and change the world. My name is Trey, and I'm going to be talking to people in the psychedelic space. Entrepreneurs, writers, investors, researchers, and people who have had profound experiences using these substances. My guest today is Peter Rattano. Peter is a serial entrepreneur and consumer marketing expert with over a decade of experience in scaling some of the world's top brands. Peter has built, advised, raised for, and sold multiple ventures, including High Noon, one of Canada's top cannabis CPG companies. Most recently, he founded Guella, a wellness company with a focus on mushrooms and psychedelics. And that's what we talk a lot about during the interview. Here's a really interesting strategy when it comes to building something for consumers in the space. Lots to dig into, so let's get to it. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell me about Guella. It looks like you're launching a few brands underneath the Guella name. Give me a little bit of context about in general, but also why you chose to come out of the gate with, with more than one brand. Yeah, um, so Guella is essentially a kind of house of brands. We're building out a few different brands that help people with their health and wellness, be it mental cognition or physical health or on the psychedelic side, transformational health. We're interested in the you know mushroom as a kind of old but new ingredient that we can take, um, look at what it does and then apply it to interesting use cases. So for example, our our first product, Mojo, has four mushrooms in it, as well as a bunch of kind of other botanicals and nootropics. And it's essentially a kind of energy or focus gummy that gives you long lasting energy, say six to eight hours, helps you focus, gives you clear thinking. We actually designed it to be like a kind of a mini microdose. That's what our science team wanted it to to, to be to start with a kind of legal platform for that. But essentially that product represents what we're trying to do generally, which is take these you know interesting ingredients, work out what they can do, and then build out products that actually solve that problem. How did you go about formulating Mojo? Yeah, it was, uh, it was probably over a, a year or so R&D. Our chief science officer, Daniel, has done all the kind of food science work. We knew we wanted to do something that, you know, helped with productivity. That was the initial idea. Like, how do we build a cool product that helped people with their productivity in the day that maybe it was a healthier option than smashing two or three cups of, you know, coffee or energy drinks or whatever it is. So how do we produce like a neat little product that that truly worked, but didn't have the downside of say a bunch of coffee that gives you jitters or ends up crashing you at three or four uh, mm-hmm. in the afternoon. So really it was just a, an iterative process. We knew there were, there's some good data around certain mushrooms and there's some good data around some, some of the botanicals that we've been using. And we blended in some that gave the energy. So for example, we have ginseng and we have some slow acting caffeine in there. On the mushroom side, we have lion's mane, we have two types of cordyceps and we have some kind of nootropics. And so it was really, and theanine to level people out. So it's a bunch of stuff all, all in there to provide the boost, but do it in a very clean way. And like I said, it was a good year of back and forth and iterations. I remember trying the first gummy and it was pretty intense. I was like mainlining espresso and not the most 
pleasant experience, but we've been tinkering and dialing and we've got it to a place that I'm, I'm super happy with. And we've probably got it into the hands of at least 2,000, 3,000 people now and got a bunch of We've gathered a bunch of data and feedback along the way, but this, the latest iteration that's about to go live has been tested on a bunch of people and we've still gathering feedback on it, but we're really happy where it's at. What has the feedback been specifically, or even your personal experience, contrasting Mojo to actually microdosing? psilocybin? Yeah, good question. It's like I said, Daniel was the guy that initially wanted to produce a platform like that. And we were riffing on what are some of the effects of microdosing psilocybin? What are the reasons why people take it? There's a, obviously a sub-perceptual impact that it has over time. You're, it, there's a compounding effect of through taking these things and adding in things like a lion's mane or these other ingredients have this impact on nerve ending growth and cognition but there's also the immediate kind of short-term impact that people like microdosing so a clarity of thought and focus mm-hmm. and so we were really blending things together that gave that short-term impact and boost which is why people want to take it in the now but also have ingredients that the adaptogenic ingredients that help over a long period of time so it's really a kind of a mimicking device for those effects and given you're creating this experience that's you know, completely legal, obviously, but it sounds like intended to be a gateway to some eventual future where perhaps microdosing is is also legal in certain places. Talk to me about the brand and some of the decisions you made in creating the brand. I know a lot of your background is around brand identity and creation. And I know you've had a a number of agencies that you've started or, or been a part of. Talk to me about that side of things. Yeah, it was a obviously a very kind of product forward brand. We had the idea for the product. We knew what we wanted to do. And we did a lot of the engineering um, of the product before we put a brand around it. A lot of the, I'd say the messaging and visuals came directly out of that effect of the product. So it's very energized. There's a lot of little kind of symbols everywhere that signify thinking and energy and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a case of this one was very product forward and then wrapping it around a, a you know, really nice brand and then thinking about, thinking about how we communicate it. But, you know, on an extra kind of level, we also started to think about who are the types of groups of people who would really benefit from a product like this. And it's any of the products that we're building, we're not really thinking about them as mushroom products. I don't see... And I love these brands, but I don't see Four Sigmatic or people like those as competitors. We're not really Mm. competing in the the mushroom space, albeit that's what we're interested in as an ingredient. Mojo's competing in the energy space. Our beverage is competing in a very different space. Like we're we're coming at this from the use case. And so we're, we're competing on these grounds. Like the reason why somebody takes Mojo is not because there's mushrooms in it. Like some people might be interested in that perspective, but it, it actually has an effect and an impact. If you're drinking a mushroom elixir or something like that, really it's, you know, tends to be like health and wellness nerds or biohackers that generally want to get healthy and they think chaga mushroom will, you know, potentially help them with some, you know, on the, with their immunity or something like that. So mm-hmm. our products, I we think of them as almost like, mushroom 2.0 the mushroom itself is not the reason the quote-unquote reason to believe the use case is the reason why people take these things and so 
the, to take the strategy one level deeper, we started thinking about, well, who are the groups that could truly benefit from energy and clarity and focus? And so there's a bunch of audiences in there where, you know, we're really interested in the esports community, for example, because mm. they all drink fairly disgusting energy drinks that have a, a lot of downside, uh, but they all need energy. They all need to focus. They all, you know, they all need steady trigger fingers or, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we want, we really, you know, we're interested in that group. We're interested in entrepreneurs and that kind of hustle kind of culture, but we're also interested in, we've been talking to medical groups about chronic fatigue. How do we get this into the hands of people that truly suffer from an energy deficit. And then there's some interesting conversation we're having about long COVID impacts, which chronic mm. fatigue kind of comes into that as well. So there's a whole range of applications to the product and different audiences we can speak to. But like I said, the kind of core of the product is really what it does for people, which is, you know, a great, a really kind of good shot of energy and kind of crystalline focus and clarity of thought. So that's interesting. That That's you know, it's sort of the double-edged sword of you're going after a broader use case, a bigger market, but also more crowded market, right? So how, how are you thinking about the differentiation? Because if it's broadly who, you know, who, need, who wants to be more productive, who wants more energy, who wants more clarity, arguably everyone, first, first of all, right? yeah, yeah. But, but there's certainly an infinite number of substitutes, right? So from a you know messaging standpoint, what is that secondary element or or primary element that you're using to differentiate and draw people into the brand? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, like to your point, is it is a double-edged sword. The mushroom space is relatively crowded. So if you were just coming out with putting a bit of lion's mane in a capsule or something mm-hmm. like that, there's go on Amazon and there's 50 different people doing that. Or after four sigmatic and uh, mud water there's there's at least 50 different coffee and tea brands out there doing basically the same thing and so we really didn't want to compete or play in that space we want to take the instant and do something new with it like I said and competing in the energy spaces all of these all of the, I like the, these kind of big spaces and I like those use cases because like you said everybody needs that in, and everyone needs a bit more energy everyone needs a bit more focus truly like most of the kind of drinks and supplements have a variety of different downsides and so that's what we really wanted to take out of this is how do we produce something that you weren't compromising on the effect and the impact but you didn't have any of the downsides that you have from a bunch of other the of of these supplements or or beverages out there and there's been a, a ton of science around impacts of energy drinks specifically i saw one coming out of south korea about specifically gamers um, mm. liver issues and all sorts of stuff around there. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take these kind of natural um, ingredients, work out how we can stack them together to create something that really works, but level off any kind of downside that traditional beverages have had. I think you mentioned in, a, in an earlier conversation we had how you were either planning or already doing some initial testing of actual microdosing in like very specific restricted places globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, we're interested in mushrooms generally and, you know, on the kind of physical and mental health side, that's functional mushrooms, but we're also interested in the, the mental health and frankly, transformational aspects that, you know, psilocybin and uh, psychedelic mushrooms can bring. And so a big part of what we want to do at Guella is 
develop products and tools that can enable people to use these substances outside of a kind of medicalized clinical setting, but still in a way where that it's kind of intentional and responsible so you can get safe, effective uh, and measured use out of them and really get the kind of impacts that you want. So our plan has always been to put Mojo style products out in jurisdictions where we're able to right now. So there's a, there's a few around the world, the Netherlands, Jamaica, Brazil, and then plant strategic footprints and and build out products on the functional side in lieu of or in advance of regulatory change Mm -hmm. in North America or Europe. So that's always been on the agenda. You know, most people or most companies in the psychedelic space are really focusing on drug development or kind of putting out clinics. And then obviously Mm -hmm. there's some great companies that are great content and education. We're obviously not I'm not a drug developer and we're not clinicians, but aside from that not being our kind of core skill set, I'm really just interested in how these substances can be used outside of that really hyper-medicalized framework. And Mm -hmm. I think that's how most people encounter them now. I think that's how most people used to encounter them. And I think that's how most people are going to encounter them in the future. These substances have traditionally not been used for very specific medicalized use cases. In Eleusis, if someone had a cluster headache, they didn't say, let's let's get out the sacred brew and fix this cluster headache. It was really more socio-cultural, kind of transformational, semi-spiritual kind of institution that would help build a lot of the glue and building blocks of, you know, of the society. And they used to be used in those ways. And most people, I think, use them now still on say on the microdose side are using them for you know creativity and you know cognitive health and then on the macrodosing side most people are using them to have awe and transformational experiences this whole mission has been how do we build products and tools that help people go from you know a zero to a plus six and not a minus six to a zero how do we take relatively healthy people and give them the tools to elevate and optimize and improve rather than fix serious medical conditions. And that's not to say we're not super stoked about all of the great research that's been going on. And it's amazing that we're going to have these plant-based treatments and better treatment options for people that are suffering from PTSD and anxiety and depression. There's, there's a lot of companies focusing on that. And Guella's focus has always been, how do we focus on this? Or how do we build tools in the more non-clinical setting you could call it consumer but it's not really recreational it's something Mm -hmm. in between i always think about what's the middle ground between going out there and rolling the dice with your buddies at the at the cabin and Uh sitting in a kind of clinician's chair in a doctor's office there's somewhere there's a middle ground there where you're using these substances in with the right set and setting with the right intentions and all that pre and post work on integration but you're not going through the, the hyper-medicalized framework for a specific kind of ailment that you're trying to fix. You're using these things to improve your state of mind and have a profound experience. And so our, our kind of first market that we'll be going into will be Jamaica, but we're also super interested in the Netherlands where you can sell truffles legally. So there's a few things we're playing with and we're, we're playing with what we can stack them with. And there's a bunch of things that go on, say, 
the illicit market that have already experimented with different stacks mm -hmm. and all that type of stuff. And there's the Stamets stack and there's a whole bunch of things out there. Do we put it with ginger to help offset nausea and that kind of stuff? So we're, we're really trying to build out quality consumer products that are, you know, accessible, that are easy to take. And say the reason why we like gummies is because you just pop them in, they're easy to taste take they're nice to take and how do we avoid people having to munch down a penis envy mushroom or drink a tea that doesn't taste that nice so how do we build accessible yeah. products that work in a kind of metered and dosed way so you know the impact you know the kind of onset kind of time and that are built in a way that you know what's in them put out in markets where you can use them and we can sell them legally so we can build up data and kind of audience sets and have a look at the impact and tweak it and then as and when we can put these products out into other markets, we will. It's fascinating. I, I think it's really interesting, you know, what you said about, for the most part, what's out there in the psychedelic space now falls in one of those two camps you mentioned, either drug development or sort of clinics, right? And certainly from a brand perspective, some of these clinics have done a great job of, of branding and PR and, and things like that, but there hasn't yet been for legal reasons, essentially, the opportunity for more of a quote unquote consumer brand to exist. But the other element of that, that I think is super powerful is the accessibility, right? So even for these clinics that are available to the public in, in many States in the U S right now, and, and in Canada, they're still extremely expensive, right? And a solution like this could potentially solve some of that problem as well. Do you have a sense of how these things might be priced and how accessible they will be? Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the time, these products are made expensive by government regulation, depending on what the framework is. Growing mushrooms and mushrooms as a raw ingredient are incredibly cheap to develop. Now, obviously, you'll have different stacks and packaging it up and all that kind of CPG mm -hmm. stuff to think about. But there's really no reason outside of regulatory barriers to have these products be so expensive. And that's why in Canada, cannabis was quite expensive or still is quite expensive compared to the black market it's the it's the regulations and, and kind of taxes and even mm -hmm. on the growing side early on the, all the licensed producers have to have had to have the crazy security and safes to store things that cost you know millions of dollars yeah. and so that made them all you know have to raise a bunch of money that put the prices up and so it just depends on how this rolls out but let's say we put out our product in Jamaica, they really shouldn't be, it'll be relatively comparable to what you can buy that's on the, on the illicit market. I would think Mojo is, is going to be about $20 for 10 gummies. We're not pricing these super expensive and a core of what we are trying to do, what we talked about is have accessibility. We want more people, we, A, we want the products to be accessible and usable and nice mm -hmm. and have friendly brand, branding and all of that stuff. But we want these products to be accessible. I think more people, if more people can get the benefit from kind of plant-based um, substitutes on the kind of health and wellness side, the better. And then more people can get access to these transformational experiences, the better. So as a company, we're all about how do we try and get more people to have these experiences in a responsible in a responsible way. And we're the opposite of say IP bombing every mm. uh, uh, use case or combination of drugs out there. I mean, we, we really want open access. I think we'd all benefit from fairly decentralized companies that put these products out. So not controlled by a few 
large pharma players. That's why one of our products we're really into is our grow kits where, you know, depending on where you are in the world, there's different levels of legality, but in Canada, mm -hmm. there's some flexibility. And so we really like that kind of product because you're empowering people to grow their own medicine and grow their own kind of health and wellness solutions at home. And frankly, like growing stuff, I think is just good for the soul. Anyway, if more people grow stuff, you can, just that patient process of going through something is a good experience sure. to have. And if you're growing tomatoes in your garden, it's a nice experience. Um, same with this kind of stuff. And, and then aside from that, you're, you're growing your own, you're empowering people to grow their own, growing their own stuff at home. And the way we see that kind of product is if you've ever grown mushrooms, it's, they're a bit finickety and they're not very pretty. Normally it's a sawdust bag with the mycelium in there wrapped in plastic. And then as a customer, you get it and you essentially you slice the, the plastic and let some air in, mist it, and then mushrooms grow out of it. And if you want to get a bit more complicated, you'll, you'll build like a, you can either have a, 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 mist, a misting tent or a shotgun box, but you know, the shotgun boxes are even more, they take up a lot of room and they're definitely uh, not that attractive to have in your house. So mm -hmm. with the kits, we've been thinking about how do we make it easier for people? And you're, so you're referring to one of the other brands right now. Yes. What, what is the yeah. name of that? My Myco. My Myco. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to make, we want to make it an easier experience. So it's not you just having to tinker about and play with humidity and all of that stuff. But we also want to make it like attractive and, and nice to display almost we're almost thinking of it like succulents how do we get mm. urban urban farmers or people interested in growing their own mushrooms and make them a something that you'd want to display on a table rather than hide away in the corner of your house and so we've been building these neat little ceramic shotgun boxes almost that you essentially load cartridges into these mycelium cartridges and then they grow out of these two slits at the side and then we're having artists decorate the ceramic wow. thing so it looks nice it's cool it's a centerpiece but it's also built for airflow and all of that type of stuff that accessibility piece is super important to us so having a decentralized open access to these to these compounds and substances is is super important to us so tell me a little bit more about the actual process with my Myco. I, I buy one of these kits or these ceramic boxes. What, how much work do I need to do and how long does that process take? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, how much work. So it's, you, you'll get the uh, ceramic shotgun box, yay big. And then you can order in the, uh, what we're calling the kind of cartridges. So you, you get a cartridge, let's say it's a lion's main cartridge. You take that, you load it in, you'll slice the, slice the sides to open up the airflow. And then over the course of 30 days, you'll have a, a flush of lion's main mushrooms. And typically they should flush like, you know, one or two times at least. So it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And it looks cool. I don't know if you've you know, seen lion's mane growing. It's pretty gnarly and it's, to me, lion's mane is probably the best mushroom to grow at home because A, it's a great substance from a kind of a mental uh, health perspective. And that's one of the products and one of the mushrooms we have in Mojo. That's one of the things that's been shown to help with kind of clarity of thought and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. But also it's delicious. If you've ever 
eaten lion's mane. It's it, people call it the the lobster of mushrooms, and it's re- you never see it in grocery stores because it's so fragile. You only ever see uh-huh. you know very very specific types of mushrooms in grocery stores because they're slightly easier to transport. But even then, they get bruised, and so you only see portobellas and mushroom uh-huh. buttons and all of that stuff. You'll really never see lion's mane unless you're at a very specialty market, and so you'll never eat it. And so growing it at home gives you access to, you know, the ability to a have this kind of essentially a health supplement, but also to try lion's mane, which I think is is one of the most delicious mushrooms. Like you slice it up, you fry it up in some butter and garlic. It's incredible. There's recipes for like lion's mane crab cakes. It's it, uh, yeah. delicious. That's really interesting. So is with my myco, is it a similar strategy to Mojo where you're starting with legal mushrooms essentially. And that eventually whenever regulations allow, you just have this platform already built where you can easily transition into or add on some psychedelic mushrooms as well. Yeah. It depends where you're talking in the world. Like in Canada, we can sell spores and kits for research purposes. So, um, you know, people do sell them legally Ah. online, not in a particular, not packaged particularly well and not like all the things that I was talking about before. So there are ways to produce grow kits for you know research purposes on the psilocybin side that, that we can play with the us is varies state by state oregon is obviously going to be very different to say texas and we'll be putting these things out uh, bit by bit but even on the kind of functional side i think you know it's just a cool thing to do so yeah. uh, we can layer in psychedelics as and when it allows in various different jurisdictions Interesting. What are the rules now in, in Oregon, for example, which is a leading area in the U.S. for legalizing or at least decriminalizing a lot of these substances? Are you, are you able yeah. to do anything there yet or on the near horizon? I don't think commercially. I'm sure people do, but for us, we probably wouldn't. It's, like you said, it's decriminalized, but it's not. I'm sure there are shops selling various different items, but we wouldn't be putting them out just yet. In Oakland, very similar thing. We'll see how these things um, roll out and then we'll put products, but we probably will start putting out the functional products a lot earlier with the, the ceramics and all of that stuff. Got it. Yeah. So these first two brands that you mentioned, Mojo and MyMyco, when do you expect those to be, be available in Canada and the U.S.? So Mojo will be available to buy May 1st in the U.S. only to start with. A few months later, we'll, we'll have it up in, in Canada and then we're going to expand it out to the U.K. But yeah, U.S. only first. The domain is uh, mojogummy.gg. So it's live right now, but it's not for sale. You can sign up on the waiting list and there's a kind of a referral thing going on, but it'll go live for sale May 1st. That's awesome. And, and what about MyMyco? MyMyco is going to be available in Canada first and then later the US. So US probably back end of the year, but Canada, mm-hmm. it'll be available in probably by the summer. We'll have, we'll have the, the kits all, all ready to go and selling online. All of this stuff will be direct to consumer to start with. So everything we do will be direct to consumer. There may be some kind of localized retail partnerships that uh-huh. we work on, but you'll be able to buy everything online. So you're Toronto based. Is there a reason you're starting Mojo in the US instead of Canada? Yeah, our, our lab's in the US. It's in Arkansas. So our chief science officer is down there with his lab. So all of that food science works has been, it's been developed there and our fulfillments all, all down there. And you know, the US, it's easier to put out products. It's a much larger market. And so it just makes a bunch of sense for us to, to be playing in, 
in the US. And it's just the, the kind of cohorts and demographics and people yeah, that, yeah. We're, that we're targeting. And a lot of a lot of the requests early on were from people in, in the US for products like this as we were starting to build it out. It's, it just made a ton of sense for us to focus there first. For sure. Was it your chief science officer or Arkansas? Which came first there? Like how did that end up being where your, your lab yeah, is? I had, I had, we actually met him on a psychedelics uh, conference, virtual conference, just as uh, COVID was kicking off. So all of all of the conferences started moving online and he was on there with one of our advisors chatting on the side panel as the conference was going on and hit it off. So our advisor introduced me to him and and Daniel has been, you know, working in cannabis and CBD and general health and wellness products for a good long time, but he's got a real passion point for psychedelics and wanted to start work uh, in that field, be it whether extractions or you know, anything else. And so we started jamming on ideas and hit it off and he, he joined the team. He's been, he's been incredible to have on board. And like I said, he's the driving force behind all the R&D and food science. Very cool. So t- tell me a little bit about the company then. How many people are, are on your team? Is this a, a bootstrap venture? Have you raised some money? Yeah. Um, so we started it uh, February last year. So launched the company and then immediately went into lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, most of, most of this company has been built throughout the pandemic and I haven't met in person, probably 80% of the people yep. that are involved, which is wild. We've got a, te- a core team of eight people now. So kind of ranging from science, ops, marketing, and then we have a great advisory board. I think with a company like this, it, you know, I've always, always have the mind that it, it takes a village. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to, you know, onboard a lot of interesting people very early on and surround the company with some interesting folks. We've got one, an ex-president of, of Red Bull Canada. We've got some ex-vitamin water kind of guys on the CPG side, capital markets folks, science. We've got a psychedelic therapist and therapeutics doctor. So we've really tried to bring in a bunch of people that can give us by, give us good advice and steer us in the right direction. And we have our, our core team of people actually you know, working on the operations. Early on, we raised a and small strategic round for a bunch of folks mm-hmm. in the summer last year. And then we raised a another small round with through some funds. So um, pretty grateful to be working with some of the best funds in the space, a fund called Fine Ventures, who yeah. love those guys and they truly get it. They understand the, the products and the direction and they backed us pretty early on, uh, a fund called JLS has been a supporter early on. We raised those financings. And then the plan is to do a larger round in this summer and then take the company public. So we're probably going to do as part of that, as part of that round, we've been trying to think of ways where we can do some interesting things that speak to the values of accessibility and opening this up to, to more people. And generally speaking, when you're raising money pre-RTO, a lot of the people investing are accredited investors and institutions. Uh, a lot of the value just, you know, on, on kind of investing generally gets sucked up pre-IPO, a lot of the kind of sequoias and tech world, anybody else, a lot of that kind of upside 
gets taken out uh, before the company goes public. So if you're buying, you know, Bumble, it's already at whatever it went public at. And a lot of that kind of early growth has, has been taken out. So we've been trying to think of ways that we can open it up to non-accredited investors as well mm-hmm. as the institutions to involve a bunch of our people and give people access to the investment upside, but also get behind the company as an accessible story. And so we're playing with the idea of doing something like a kind of a crowdfund type, you know, investment round in addition to the institutional round before we go public. So that should be happening in the summer. Wow. That's fascinating. And so you mentioned RTO, which is a very, you know, Canadian specific thing, right. To, to going public in, in Canada. And for people listening that are primarily in the U S the idea of a consumer company going public or talking about going public before they even launch, it's like ludicrous, right? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but I understand this is obviously a, this is a, a way more common practice in Canada. And I, and, I, and I hadn't heard that explanation before of essentially making it more accessible. One of the downsides that most companies, at least in the US, think of in going public, typically at a much later stage, is just the, the regulatory scrutiny yeah. uh, that comes along with that. How do you think about that? balance of either continuing to raising money privately or or going public earlier on? Yeah, there definitely is a kind of administrative overhead that gets added when you go this route. So it's not without its kind of considerations or, or downsides. It is very different with this. And so in the US, you don't really have small exchanges like we do. And there's pluses and minuses to it. So in Canada, we have the CSE, we have NEO, we have the TSXV, all of these exchanges are essentially venture exchanges. And so what it allows companies to do is raise money from a wider pool of people to to back their early stage company in a very similar way that you would raise money from private institutions. The plus side of that, just generally in Canada, it's a really neat platform because the venture exchanges give access to retail investors, a high risk, high return proposition that you wouldn't normally get from public companies. We have incredibly high growth companies going live that would normally only be the domain of, like I said, accredited investors. And so that's the advantage, certainly on the, just on the consumer retail side, as you get access to these deals that you wouldn't. Cannabis was big for doing this in Canada. We had an enormous amount of high growth companies going live on the exchanges. Of course, since then, we've had some deflation in the scene Mm -hmm. as America's come online. But, um, and then for a company, the advantage is you're essentially extending your capital pool base. So you're mm-hmm. opening up, opening it up to a much wider pool of potential investors. So for us, it's going to allow us to bring on board a, a much diverse, much more diverse group of investors. Once, once we're public, people have access to buy and sell and all that type of stuff. Um, and it gives you the tools to be able to you know, quickly raise additional capital. Let's say if you want to do some M&A or something like that, which is a fairly typical thing to do for these early stage companies. Let's mm-hmm. say we want to buy another mushroom brand, well, we'll be able to leverage our public position to uh, acquire these companies and scale our growth a lot faster. So it's a mechanism in Canada for venture companies and allowing retail investors to, to get involved at a much earlier stage. Interesting. So we, we mentioned RTO a couple of times. Can you briefly explain what that is and how that works? Yeah, so an RTO is a reverse takeover. It's very similar to what, what what's called a SPAC in the US. 
So instead of um, doing a, an, an IPO, which is listing your company yourself as a fresh company going on the exchange, what you're doing with an RTO is you're looking for a company that is already public, which may not um, be doing anything, may have failed, may just be a static company. And you're essentially taking over that, that kind of shell and reversing into it. So it's a reverse takeover, takeover of the company. So you don't have to go through the usual kind of channels and kind of do all of that usual stuff to get on the exchange. You're, you're accelerating that process. Now there's advantages and disadvantages to, to doing that as well. It's just a, it's a much faster process that a lot of these higher growth companies like to do. It's fascinating. So you mentioned how this was a, obviously a process that was used quite a bit in the cannabis boom. And I know some of your background is in cannabis as well. You started a cannabis brand yourself. Is that right? Yeah, we started a company called High Noon. So we were fortunate with our agencies early on to do a lot of work with the early cannabis companies in, in Canada, pre-legalization mm. set up and started developing and, and growing with the medical framework that was pre-recreational. And so we were working with these companies and we were fortunate enough to be on the ground when a lot of the early brands started to get built before legalization in anticipation of the recreational market opening. And so we were involved in building and helping scale a lot of these brands, which was even now it's, it's difficult, but back then, you know, that you don't have the same tools in the toolkit to build out this brand. You can't advertise on Facebook, mm -hmm. Facebook bans you, you can't advertise mm -hmm. on Google and with health Canada restrictions, you can't, you can't show lifestyle imagery you can't really use influences in the same way you can't speak about the benefits of the products there's all these kind of rules and restrictions and so we got pretty good at building brands that were within that weren't treading on any kind of regulatory issues but also once recreational cannabis went legal actually scaling them without relying on the usual d2c channels that mm -hmm. every consumer brand relies on and so we started doing that and after a year we thought you know we can do this for ourselves and we can build out some products for ourselves and so what we thought about very early on was you know cannabis is a commodity like any other commodity and early on in Canada there was an artificial restriction of supply because it was very expensive to grow cannabis, only a few LPs were able to do it, which meant the prices were essentially artificially high. The supply was, was very limited, but over time you would see more and more supply and there would be a price compression. The commodity price would drop. And the only way that you build out products and keep margin is through doing what Heineken, thinking about cannabis in the same way that Heineken does, which is as a CPG product where you're building a brand, you're building relationships with consumers. So they're buying it, not just based on this raw commodity, but on the relationship they have with the product and the brand. And so um, we also we also wanted to eschew this model that was going on, still goes on, of vertical integration. Everybody talks about vertical integration in the cannabis world, and it's starting to happen in the psychedelics world as this advantage. And I just I just never I've never seen it as an advantage. If you're trying to be a farmer, cultivator, brand developer, drug developer, distributor, all in the same company, 
it's, I just don't think it's going to work. I don't think you can specialize in all of those things. I'd say the only exception really is a company like Tesla, but that's Elon Musk. Like, yeah, Elon Musk can do anything he wants, but sure. for everybody else, it's rarely an advantage. So Starbucks don't grow all of their coffee. They yep. say that they source the best coffee from around the world. They have these educational facilities where they're empowering and helping out localized farmers. And they do have some reserve farms that they wholly own. But for the most part, they don't grow their own raw ingredients and Heineken doesn't grow their own hops. And we didn't think we should have, we, we'd have to grow our own cannabis or grow the, our own raw materials for the products that we were going to develop. So we mm. wanted to focus on formulation and product stacks and brand, and then putting those products into market and building relationships with our consumers. So we put out a pre-roll product and we've got a, a vape uh, on the market. We, we're launching some, or we're launching some uh, gummies pretty shortly. And yeah, it's, it was, it's a wicked experience. And wow. so that, that product's still going, it's got its own management team and it's, it's rocking and rolling. This, we're now seeing the thesis come to life, which is what I like about it. Like now we're seeing a uh -huh. massive drop in commodity prices. We're seeing the big Canadian licensed producers really suffer. There's too much cannabis. They're all now trying to scramble to grow and build better brands to build relationships with consumers. And of course, they don't do it that well because they're all, they've all been focusing on building these enormous facilities to grow cannabis. And now they're trying to get in that game. There were a few great companies early on that recognized this. Origin House was a Canadian company that saw the US and saw this model. Mm -hmm. So they, they did something similar. There was a company called Slang that does something similar. So taking a kind of CPG model and applying it to the cannabis space. So what was the key to unlocking distribution and marketing then? If you were limited by the at least traditional DTC channels, was it going B2B or was it some other content play? What was the unlock there for you? Yeah, so Canada's very got very specific uh, channels. So the government essentially buys the weed from you and then they have their online store. So in Ontario, it's the OCS. Oh. And then retailers then buy it from the government. So it's fairly convoluted, but there's no, you're not selling it on, you're not driving D2C sales directly. Mm. We try and come up with really nice kind of visuals and vanity mocks, knowing that, in the store, it would look nothing like that, yep, but building yep. up brands online on socials, albeit on socials, it's still, it's quite hard. A lot of Instagram uh, accounts are getting shut down still because they don't love this uh, content because it's still federally mm -hmm. legal in the US and that's where they take their lead from. So it was, there's a lot of different things that we thought about. There's specific networks that you can advertise on, programmatic exchanges that you can reach people through. Some platforms are much more lenient than others. So Twitter, in the right circumstances, you can advertise in Canada. Snapchat has got some great kind of cannabis uh, products that you can uh, advertise through. We would do just content marketing and seeding on communities like Reddit. Experiential events, you can do some things. And also, there's no, in, in Canada, there's no better person to market to than the bud tenders, the people actually recommending mm -hmm in the dispensaries, talking about the product that have a relationship. And so building relationships um, with those people and explaining about a product and making it super easy for them to talk about the product and why people should buy the product was, is really a key in, in Canada, certainly. Makes a lot of sense. So with Guella, back to Guella and, and Mojo and MyMyco, 
do you face some of the same hurdles? I know even, even though you're going to be starting with completely legal products, I know there's some, there's still some hurdles there with online advertising, right? Any, anytime you're trying to claim certain benefits or anything that might be, you know, construed as being a medical uh, substance of some sort, what are the rules there? And, and how do you think about distributing this, these products? Yeah, the functional ones for sure are going to be heavily, you know, direct to consumer. And we can use a lot of the tools um, that we would normally use. There's nothing illegal in these products. Yeah, you can't claim they're going to cure cancer or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. We can say that they improve energy and we, we're using ingredients that are stacked in there that have been shown to work and have got great data behind them. Nobody's going to debate about caffeine providing energy. And obviously have to stick within framework. That That is how a lot of the CBD, CB, CBD marketers have got away with some of the things that they do mm. in the States. So they, you can't say that CBD helps with sleep, but you can say that melatonin helps with sleep. And so adding melatonin to the product, you can ah. claim, you can make a claim about it that you can't make about CBD. Yeah, we, we haven't really got any hurdles when it comes to that though. So it's really talking frankly about the product, what's in it, what it can do and what the benefits are for us. That's great. Do you know yet which channels you're going to be? Yeah, good question. So we're really into channels, TikTok. It depends what could group we're going after like we'll be doing a bunch of stuff on twitch if it's uh the esports folks i mean we'll definitely have a presence and advertise on facebook and instagram you know that i think you've got to with a consumer product but you've got to do it in interesting ways now there is no blitz scale by spending your way to to scale on facebook it's just it's way more competitive it's much more expensive and so you obviously need to be a lot more savvy about how you go about deploying that spend and the types of ads as well. One of the reasons why we're not launching now is we're just giving the product and uh, seeing what people think and getting feedback and testimonials. And we're doing a bunch of that pre-work. So when we go live, um, we have people talking about the product and saying what it's done and experiences and all of that type of stuff. And so if we were just going out there and saying, yo, buy, buy Mojo, it does this, yeah, I think yeah. it's a lot less credible. Five years ago, when we were doing that on Facebook, it worked. You could, we could scale really any kind of product with the right types of advertising, but it's just, it's a lot more difficult now on, on those networks because of the expense, the competitiveness. And now Facebook's about to get whacked with the latest iOS update and all of that type of stuff. So we're just, we want to build this product organically. So get it into the hands of people that we want to use it, build out kind of content around it, add value and accelerate that with the ads that we'll, that we'll choose to run on the networks that we'll leverage depending on what the audience is. So before I let you go, tell us briefly about the third product and, and brand. We've actually got uh, a couple that we're working on. We've got, oh, okay. uh, yeah, we've got the, we've got, well, we've got the, the microdose product that we'll, we'll be putting out in Jamaica. Brand name is, is under wraps at the moment, but we're, we've got something cool that we're, that we're working on. Awesome. And then we've got a, a beverage that, we're, that was actually the first product that we really started to riff on. And it's a, essentially a, a functional mushroom beverage that, is think of it like a, a LaCroix style beverage okay. that has a, a few different functional mushrooms and ingredients in there that's a light refreshing 
healthy drink that's off the shelf and, and ready to go. And it has some use cases that we'll discuss maybe next time or when we're a bit closer, but we've got a really neat, we've done, we've done some really interesting work on the effects of some of the mushrooms we're including in there from a kind of a very specific uh, use case that we're, we're pretty excited about. So I'll keep that one under wraps for now, but it's cool. But that was the first product that we were developed because I wanted to put something out in the market where people could have a functional mushroom beverage, but they didn't have to mix it themselves. That's everything. That's all the things I was yeah. trying to, to do initially was I, as much as I like the coffees and teas and all of that type of stuff or elixirs and tinctures, I just mm-hmm. don't like, I wanted to make this ready to go. You want a mushroom, but here it is. It tastes yeah, nice, drink it. And there's, yeah, exactly. There's no barrier. You don't have have to become an apothecary and mix this stuff up yourself. It's ready to go in the can. And are you publicly sharing the name of that yet? TBD on that. We actually had a name, but it's 50% hated by the team. And so we're (laughs) we're reworking it. That's a good sign to me. Something polarizing is, is probably a smart brand. That's true. You don't want to. You don't want everybody to to love you. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much for for sharing all this. I don't know how. I don't know how you do it. Juggling all these different products and brands. I think it's super exciting. I think I'm going to be a customer of all of them. So I'm super excited to to try them out and and, and look forward to your launches. Amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, to get some into your hands, and I would love to hear what you think. And yeah, like I said, we're launching in in May, so hit up the website and would love to know what everybody thinks. And about. what's the website again? So our, our main website is Guella Mushrooms. So G-W-E-L-A mushrooms.com. And then Mojo's website is mojogummy.gg. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Peter. Best of luck. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or know of anyone who might benefit from hearing it, please subscribe and share. You can also sign up for the Mind Things newsletter at mindthings.co and find us on Twitter at mindthingsco. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.